A man with a theory on levels so grand, about states and war my writing keen, my name known on the international scene. Structures of power is what I adore, anarchy's influence I explore. Who am I? And that was this week's E-International Relations Riddle Challenge. Don't forget to stay tuned to the end of this episode to get the answer to this week's riddle. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara and I am going to be your host as always. And this week I am joined by my co-host Tusharika Decker. Hi Tusharika, great to have you back with us. Hi Kieran, I hope you're doing well and good to be back. Isn't it just? <laughs> so Tusharika is an editor-at-large at E-International Relations, and I'm so happy to have her with me today because we are both interviewing Professor Giorgio Shani on Sikh nationalism and post-Western IR. Now, Professor Shani is going to be talking about an article he previously wrote for International Relations in September called The Sikh Diaspora in the Shadow of Khalistan, and a link to that is in the description box. Alongside that, next to the description box is a little subscribe or follow button. Please click on that, and that way you'll be able to get all the content that Thinking Global has to offer the moment that it all starts streaming and is uploaded. <laughs> and that way you don't have to spend ages searching for us. It just goes bing <laughs> on your phone and it's ready to listen. Professor Giorgio Shani is a professor and former chair of the Department of Politics and International Studies at International Christian University, Tokyo. He is the author of Sikh Nationalism and Identity in a Global Age and Religion, Identity and Human Security, co-author of Sikh Nationalism from a Dominant Minority to an Ethno-Religious Diaspora, and more. From 2014 to 2018, he served as President of the Asia-Pacific Region of the International Studies Association and currently chairs the Religion and Politics Research Committee at the International Political Science Association. Okay, T, let's roll. Professor Shani, thank you ever so much for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. No worries at all. So for the sake of those listeners who may not be familiar, who are the Sikhs and what is Sikh nationalism? Well, the Sikhs are a distinctive cultural and uh, religious community in South Asia uh, with a vibrant uh, diaspora and uh, a territorial uh, holy land uh, and or homeland. Uh, they are seen as distinctive uh, because most, but certainly not all, uh, baptized Amritdari male Sikhs, and not exclusively male, um, wear uncut hair uh, in turbans and may carry ceremonial swords called kirpans in line with the teachings of their 10th and final human guru, uh, Gobind Singh. There are approximately uh, 26 million Sikhs uh, globally, with the vast majority living in the Indian state of Punjab, uh, where they form a slight majority, and 3 million, arguably up to 4 million, living abroad, 
mainly in former British colonies and dominions, but also there is a sizable diaspora in Europe, interestingly in, in Italy uh, and other parts of the European Union who migrated from the Punjab uh, after 1984, and I'll speak more about the events of 1984 later. Uh, so for Sikhs, Punjab is their homeland, and Amritsar um, in, in the Punjab is the Sikh Jerusalem or Mecca, uh, where the holiest shrine uh, is located uh, within the Golden Temple complex. Now, Sikh nationalism refers to the demands many Sikhs have for their recognition as a political as well as a religious community. Uh, as I've argued throughout my work, it is not necessarily tied to statehood. Uh, its origins arguably lie in the establishment of the Khalsa or Khalsa Panth by uh, Guru Gobind in 1699, when he conferred all temporal sovereignty onto his followers through the doctrine of Guru uh, Panth and religious authority onto the holy book, which became uh, the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, I think most modern observers of nationalism uh, would pay um, attention to the transformations of Sikh identity uh, within British colonial rule um, and uh, the recruitment of Sikhs and uh, into Sikh regiments in the uh, British army, uh, but perhaps most particularly uh, the establishment in 1919 of a Sikh political system as a result of a successful um, campaign uh, led by Sikhs um, to um, appoint their own um, uh, priests. Um, this led to the formation of the Shiromani Gurdwara Pravandak Committee, the SGPC, which controls uh, the Gurdwaras or Sikh temples uh, within Punjab and a main Sikh political party, the Shiromani Akali Dal. Uh, so this is, of course, important uh, because most theories of nationalism uh, look at the key role played by political mobilization. Uh, so the Shiromani Akali Dal and SGPC uh, forms a political system upon which Sikh claims to nationhood are based. Hi, Giorgio, the Sharika this side. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for explaining who the Sikh are and about Sikh nationalism. You have been extensively working on Sikh nationalism along with Gurpal Singh and in your book, you have written about the Khalistani movement. Uh, for our listeners who are not aware of it, would you expand a bit about the Khalistani movement and what exactly is its correlation with Canada? Thank you very much for the question, Tasharika. Yeah, the, the Khalistan movement refers to the movement for an independent Sikh state or Khalistan, a land of the pure. Uh, this may be seen as one modern articulation of Sikh nationalism. It actually predates the partition of colonial India into a mainly Hindu India and Muslim Pakistan by the British. And there are obvious links here with the British mandated territory of, of Palestine and also with Ireland. Um, however, uh, the, the term Khalistan resurfaced 
following the storming of the Golden Temple complex by Indian troops in June 1984. This precipitated an insurgency, or from a Sikh nationalist perspective, a war of national self-determination, which claimed approximately 30,000 lives until the restoration of normalcy, uh, which can be seen the restoration of limited democratic rule in 1995. Uh, however, it remains strong in the diaspora, uh, particularly in Canada, uh, where some uh, 770,000 Sikhs live. And I think the importance here of Canada is um, Canada has um, uh, a long and successful record of uh, accommodating uh, minorities. And Sikhs in many cases have been seen as a model uh, minority in assimilating uh, to uh, multicultural Canadian society. However, their success in assimilating to Canadian society does not mean uh, that the lure of the homeland has disappeared. Interesting, interesting. So one aspect of this that you discussed in your recent article for E-International Relations concerns the role of diasporas. What role does the Sikh diaspora play in global identity politics? Thank you very much for the question. Uh, I should have mentioned that um, the article which uh, I wrote in AIR, uh, which was based on my contribution to, to the book with Gahapal Singh, Sikh Nationalism, and also my previous book, Sikh Nationalism and Identity in a Global Age, takes issue uh, with the dominant Indian government narrative which has remained unchanged since the infamous 1984 white paper on the Punjab agitation, uh, that the Sikh diaspora, particularly in North America and the United Kingdom, is behind the movement for Khalistan. Uh, certainly today, there are more pressing issues faced by Sikhs in the Punjab uh, than uh, homeland issues, issues such as corruption, uh, certainly farm suicides, a drug epidemic. Uh, but this view obscures the fact uh, that the Sikh diaspora has actually played a key role in global identity politics, which goes beyond a narrow nationalist vision. So Sikh organizations such as the Sikh Coalition uh, in the US and the Sikh Federation in the UK have played a key role post 9-11 in fighting for the recognition for Sikhs and other minorities, um, uh, particularly in the light of the uh, racist backlash to um, um, the 9-11 uh, attacks uh, and the war of terror where Sikhs uh, were targeted. Um, furthermore, uh, Sikh non-governmental organizations such as Carl Sarraid, have dispensed aid to all communities during the COVID crisis, irrespective of faith or ethnicity, in line with the relational ethos of Sikhi. And I think Sikhi is of key importance for understanding the Sikhs and Sikhism. Uh, Sikhi can be seen as a relational cosmology. By relational cosmology, uh, I mean a set of normative, ontological and epistemological statements 
about the origins of the cosmos and our relationship to it, premised on the assumption that the self cannot be separated from and indeed contains within it the other, and that relations are indeed constitutive of self and other. So if we look, let's say, in the Sikh holy book, the Guru Granth Sahib, you find hymns from sacred texts and prophets of South Asia's two other main religious traditions, Hinduism and Islam. Uh, so this is particularly important. Sikhism or Sikhi uh, draws upon other cosmological traditions. Um, so the origins of Sikhi lie in this encounter between Hindu and Muslim sacred traditions through the Sufi and Bhakti movements uh, in the Punjab region of, of northern India. And if you are to go to Gudawara, um, uh, a Sikh temple, uh, you find that worshippers from other religious faiths are welcome. And one of the um, obligations of visiting a Gudawara is to have um, a communal meal, uh, the langa, uh, with other worshippers. Now, this intentionally breaks down religious and caste differences. Um, so I, I, I see that um, many Sikh diasporic organizations uh, play upon and uh, articulate this relational ethos. So in my work, I've argued that Sikh nationalism is really only one aspect of Sikh diasporic identity. Sikh political mobilization in the diaspora is in fact constitutive of a new uh, imagined community, to use Benedict Anderson's phrase, the global Sikh calm, a deterritorialized community which in linking the Punjab with its diasporas, with the various Sikh diasporas, goes beyond Khalistan and engages uh, with diaspora as well as homeland issues. Both can be seen as what Charles Taylor termed politics of recognition, seeking recognition uh, for Sikh uh, political and religious identity within the nation state and in a world of nation states. So welcome to the interval of this episode where I read out some of our letters. We love getting your letters because we hear all about what you're reading about, what you're publishing on, and what you've been using from international relations. This week's letter comes from Georgia in London. Dear Kieran and the Thinking Global team, my name is Georgia and I am a politics A-level student in Orpington, just outside London. I've been listening to Thinking Global and I really, really enjoyed the episode with Cynthia Enloe. That was an absolutely eye-opening episode where you spoke about feminism in a way that I've never thought about before. Thank you so much for putting this out there, and I can't wait to go on and study more international relations at university next year. Thank you, and best wishes, Georgia. P.S. Please make sure everybody subscribes and follows because your podcast is absolutely amazing. <laughs> Well, thank you ever so much, Georgia. We really, really appreciate your letter. 
And I can pretty much say from everyone in the IR community, we wish you the best of luck with your studies moving forward when you're studying international relations at university next year. And we really enjoyed the episode with Cynthia Enlow as well. Absolutely fantastic. (laughs) Thank you so much for writing in all of your letters. We love receiving them. And we do want to hear from you about what you've been reading, what you've been publishing on, what you've been reading on international relations, the articles you've enjoyed, and the episodes of Thinking Global that you've really, really liked listening to. So, if you do have a letter, please email us at thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. Please, please send them in. We love hearing from you. Please do remember that everyone that works at International Relations is a volunteer. If you enjoy our output, please, please consider a donation. There is a link in the description box. And stay tuned for this week's riddle. Thanks for pointing out the key role of Sikh nationalism globally. And, you know, Georgia, I must tell you that as an international student, I have survived a lot on the Langas. So thanks to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, in the context Absolutely. of this expanding influence of Hindu nationalism, how do you think the Sikh nationalism kind of can be compared a line of position itself? Well, I think the great uh, analogy, it's a fantastic question, but the, the, the great analogy here was perhaps that which was articulated by uh, British uh, Orientalists uh, who feared that Sikhism would be swallowed uh, like Buddhism before it into the boa constrictor of Hinduism. Um, now, if, if we look at Sikh nationalism um, in a narrow sense, which is the uh, claim to separate to separate uh, statehood um, then Sikh nationalism is reactive uh, it is reactive to forms of Hindu and Muslim nationalisms which were articulated powerfully um, in colonial India in uh, now if we look at the regional context uh, in post 1984 Punjab uh, the dominant battle faction of the main Sikh political party, uh, the SAD, the Shiromani Akali Dal, has in fact aligned itself with Hindu nationalism and the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, and formed electoral alliances with it. This is basically based on the exigences of electoral politics of the Punjab and defeating the Indian National Congress, which was seen to have organized the anti-Sikh pogroms Uh, which took place 39 years ago in November 1984. However, there are contradictions between this projects of Sikh and Hindu nationalism, which have resurfaced during the farmers' protests between 2020 and 21, and more recently over the Nijar case. As as I've argued elsewhere, India under Prime Minister Narendra Modi is transitioning from a uh, at least you know people would say pseudo secular but at least there's a pretense at a secular nation state towards a, a hindu rashtra where the, the indian nation is defined uh, in uh, exclusively in hindu terms it's defined in and around an ethnicized hindu core ethno religious minorities are expected to assimilate to this core articulated national values 
uh, or risk marginalization. Uh, this is particularly true for the largest ethno-religious minority, the Muslims. However, the BJP and the RSS uh, before it has historically developed a discourse of, to paraphrase uh, Mahmoud Bandami, uh, good and bad minorities. Um, so good minorities are pro-national minorities, bad minorities are anti-national minorities. Mm -hmm. Its origins can be seen in the, in the work of Hindu nationalism or Hindutva's ideologue Veer Savarkar, who argued that every person is a Hindu who regards this land from the Indus to the seas as his fatherland, as well as his holy land, i.e. the land of origins of his religion, the cradle of his faith. Thus, a distinction could be drawn between those religions indigenous to India, Sikhs, Jains, and Buddhists, and those who were exogenous, Christians, and most particularly Muslims. Now, according to RSS, the RSS, Sikhs are Hindus. Uh, so Sikhs were incorporated into the Hindu fold as ethno-religious boundaries between Sikhs and Hindus were historically uh, and sociologically porous. Sikhs would frequently intermarry with Hindus on caste lines. So it makes no sense to, to think of Sikhs as a separate uh, religious community, particularly from an RSS perspective. However, the contradictions between Sikh and Hindu nationalism are now being revealed and played out by the securitization of Sikh participation in the farmers' protest. Uh, which forced the historical and humiliating climb down from Narendra Modi and now the Nijara case. Uh, so the SGPC has asked the Indian government to investigate the Canadian government's allegations of involvement in the assassination of Nijar, and this strains its relationship with the BJP and its electoral ally, the SAD um, Badal faction. So Sikh nationalism is now back on the agenda of Punjab politics, which has recently been dominated by issues of corruption, which led to the election of the AAP as the main political party. However, nationally, uh, Sikhs have become the new anti-national other against which the Hindu self is defined. Uh, for Sikhs, there are certainly limits to the extent which they can assimilate into a Hindu rashtra without losing their identity as a distinct calm or people. Uh, so they risk being swallowed back to the analogy, back into the bowel constrictor of Hinduism. Thank you so much for Jojo for expanding on that. And that's very, very helpful. Um, moving on to the next question. And I know within your work, you have always advocated for a post-Western scholar of IR. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but the first time actually I met you was for a conference in Delhi almost a decade back. And it was organized by Navnita. And it was yep. the dawn of the Asian century, you know, emer emerging challenges to IR and non-Western IR. So, you know, keeping in mind that there are limitations. What are the epistemic challenges in introducing a post-Western school and what can be done to overcome them? Well, thank you very much for, for bringing that up. That uh, can, yeah, uh, makes me feel uh, old as well. But um, it's also great that you mentioned Navnita has been a great influence on me and, and, and I've uh, had the pleasure of working with her yeah. uh, on an article for Review of International Studies. Um, I uh, Basically, I mean, f first, in order to, to explain the, the question, 
uh, let me explain what I mean by post-Western, perhaps for the audience, yeah. and contextualize the need for a post-Western approach too, uh, rather than I would say a school of IR. I think IR has enough schools, uh, so I think we, we need different approaches rather than a school. Uh, by contrasting it with perhaps um, uh, non-Western IR, uh, which uh, and uh, and global IR. So post-Western IR shares a similar genealogy here with post-colonial IR. So I think if you remember that conference, I think Ashish Nandi may be one of the keynote speakers, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, that certainly shows you um, that that um, particular conference uh, was uh, influenced very much, uh, not by traditional international relations, but by work which was done outside of the, of the discipline. Uh, and um, I think uh, from from post-colonial IR, one of the, the key texts um, is is of obviously the, the work of Dipesh Chakravarti. Um, and for me, post-Western IR seeks to provincialize, um, uh, in Chakravarti's words, the West claims to universalism, and particularize the epistemology and, and ontology of Western IR. So the idea here is that Western rationalist or constructivist IR is not IR, uh, but is one approach amongst many. However, although uh, post-colonial theorists are correct to point out, and this makes perfect sense in a society such, such as India, that uh, Western modernity was coercively imposed by colonial powers and experienced through imperialism, many elites in non-Western, in so-called non-Western societies, uh, such as uh, where I am at the moment, which is Japan. So in Meiji Japan, post-Ottoman Turkey, and later nationalist and communist China. Uh, you can talk about Abyssinia under uh, Haile Selassie. Uh, adopted the characteristics of Western modernity, such as a standing professionalized military or modern education system based on literacy, um, a capitalist or socialist world economy, and most importantly, the nation state of their own accord although it could be argued that they did so in response to threats of colonization. So there's no um, um, consciousness of having, in this sense, been colonized. Uh, so the polities uh, which have emerged combined indigenous values with Western political forms, um, so they cannot be termed non-Western. Indeed, many of these polities, polities such as Tsarist Russia, Turkey after Ataturk, and most uh, especially contemporary Japan, see themselves as part of the West. Uh, this is the wonderful thing about teaching post-Western Japan in Japan. They see themselves as part of the West. Um, and what, what's, what's interesting is they're never uh, included in ideas of the West. They're always othered, even though they're more modern than the West. Um, so I would also regard, um, I would also regard them as part of the West as they took the political form of the nation state, uh, as did much of the third world after decolonization. Sorry, all of the third world after decolonization. Um, so my understanding of post-Western IR has been influenced by uh, the work of people such as Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, I wrote about him in a recent article in Global Studies Quarterly. Um, and I would argue that we need to go beyond the nation state, beyond uh, beyond the values and characteristics of Western modernity to acknowledge different and in many cases older forms of political community, such as the Ummah, 
And in the case of the Sikhs, and this is where my work goes full circle, um, the Khalsa Panth, um, which have their own understanding of the sacred and profane and universality and particularity. However, these indigenous political communities have been profoundly impacted and shaped by their encounter with Western modernity and coloniality. Uh, the values upon which co these communities are based cannot be articulated in the language of IR or liberal modernity without doing violence to them. This is because their expressions are fragments from different cosmologies, different ways of being and relating to the cosmos, which cannot be accommodated uh, even within the pluralistic universalism of global IR. So I think global IR has been a welcome counter to the Eurocentrism of the discipline and has uh, really transformed international relations. But it is committed to this idea of a plural, pluralistic universalism, um, which I, I think is could be seen as potentially as problematic. So the main epistemic challenge to come to your question lies in the difficulty or perhaps the impossibility of articulating cosmological claims about the political in their own terms, which can relate to other normative political claims in a world of many worlds, uh, which I would term a pluriverse. Um, so th th these are arguments which I've, um, I haven't sort of uh, arrived at just on, on my own, but really in conversation uh, with, with a group of scholars, um, particularly uh, you mentioned Navnita and we authored, uh, co-authored um, a special issue uh, with uh, Tamara Tramsell on a uh, review of international studies on pluriversal relationality, which outlines ideas of pluriversality and relationality. And I'm currently working on a project with uh, Professor Art McBear at um, uh, Newcastle University uh, based on a, on a Millennium article we wrote a couple of years ago on the possibility of a plurilogue, a pluriversal dialogue between different cosmologies, which potentially could overcome or at least address the epistemic challenge uh, which you note. Uh, however, uh, we are not there yet. Hmm, interesting. So, Professor Shani, I have one last question for you. And this is a question we ask everybody that comes on the podcast and that is what is it to think globally for you okay um thank you i i, I believe in a way i probably answer that question yeah. in a roundabout way um, by expanding upon the epistemic challenge to post-western ir but just to uh to summarize it um uh, i take issue with the concept of the global I think the concept of the global is a good thing because it allows us to think of international relations and to think in different ways. Um, but um, the concept of the global is still premised on the idea of a single space. Um, I would argue that um, perhaps we need to transition uh, to thinking uh, in terms uh, of pluriversality, you know, of a world of many worlds, uh, rather than a single global. So perhaps thinking globally uh, would be articulating uh, different relations between universality and particularity uh, from different perspectives. 
Um, so that for me would really be um, um, the global. However, I should point out that um, uh, this uh, uh, focusing on the global um, is important um, if we look at uh, the current uh, deglobalizing um, trends which characterized um, uh, contemporary uh, global uh, politics um, and particularly uh, the emergence here of, of, of nationalism um, and uh, of religious infused nationalism. Uh, so I would like to, uh, to think more globally, even though um, I think thinking globally would mean reflecting upon the limits of the global, uh, but at the same time, not retreating back uh, into um, the safety or security of uh, an imagined um, uh, uh, particular political community or nation state. What a wonderful answer. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I, I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you. Wow, he was amazing, wasn't he, T? Okay, Tasharika, hit me with your immediate thoughts. I thought that was a fantastic conversation, Karen, and I learned a lot from this conversation. In fact, I've always learned for Georgia's work, particularly about non-Western IR. Um, thank you for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely learn a lot from his work. I just think it's over-brimming with different kinds of discourse and different kind of intersections. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Thank you ever so much for listening to this episode. At Thinking Global, we are part of E-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you haven't been over to E-International Relations, go check it out at e-ir.info. There you'll just be able to find tons and tons of articles, free books, book reviews, interviews, features, loads of stuff. Go check it out. There is a link in the description box. Also, speaking about that description box, click on that little follow or subscribe button so that you get the content that we upload immediately to your device. <laughs> Now, before I give you the answer to this week's riddle challenge, I would like to say a massive thank you to the Thinking Global team at E-International Relations. That's a massive thanks to Ismail Aden, Eddie Cohen, Edward Curry, Catherine Dameron, Jennifer Engel, Nigel Huckle, Daniel McDade, Eduardo Pieroni, and Romanus Orpheus Toffis. Cheers, guys. You guys rock. <laughs> And thanks also to Material Music for the music. Okay, let's not keep you hanging any longer. This was this week's riddle. A man with a theory on levels so grand, about states and war my writing keen, my name known on the international scene. Structures of power is what I adore, anarchy's influence I explore. Who am I? And the answer was, of course, the great late Kenneth Waltz. Definitely have a read if you've never read Kenneth Waltz. Whether you agree with him, disagree with him, staple. <laughs> great stuff, great conversation in those pages. And the first person to correctly guess this across all of E-International Relations social media platforms, be that Twitter, 
Facebook, Instagram, TikTok or LinkedIn was a teaching fellow from the University of Bath, Archie William Simpson. Well done, Archie. Fantastic job. Really, really well done. So stay tuned for next week's riddle. And who knows, you might just win the shout out. (laughs) Thank you ever so much once again. And thank you so much to my co-host, Tusharika. And I guess there's really only one last thing left to say, which is, I've been Kieran O'Meara. I'm Tusharika Dekha. And together we've been Thinking Global. See you next week.